The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone, and welcome. Long reading this morning. I'm glad that Jen runs marathons. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, and the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's been many numerous public tributes to Tim Keller since his death a couple of weeks ago. So many have been affected by his passing, and that's, of course, because of his profound impact that he's had on many millions even. It's not hyperbole, and you all know that I love hyperbole, but it's not hyperbole to say that Keller was the greatest voice for the Christian faith in this generation and that we might not have another like him in our lifetime. seems to me that the Lord has a penchant for raising up one voice in each generation that he uses more than any other to minister to his people and to bring others to faith, and that was Keller. Another reason, I think, though, for the outpouring of the tributes is because many Christians today are very scared scared about the rise of secularism and the overall decline of Christianity in our culture, as well as the many changes in cultural norms and morality that we see transpiring, especially with gender and sexuality and marriage. And so there's no doubt to us that our times have changed dramatically and rapidly, but we had Tim Keller persuading us and persuading others of what the Bible teaches is right and good and true and beautiful. And so he gave us a confidence in our beliefs. David Brooks, who came to faith through Keller's ministry, said as much. He said, Tim could draw on a vast array of intellectual sources to argue for the existence of God, to draw piercing psychological insights from troubling parts of scripture, or to help people through moments of suffering. His voice was warm, his observations crystal clear. We all tried to act cool around Tim but we knew we had a giant in our midst. And with that giant, we felt safer. But what now? What now and what does life and faith look like for us in these times? The Old Testament book of Judges, I think, can help answer that question for us and maybe even calm some of our fears and our worries that we feel. So we're gonna revisit it for five weeks. We studied it a few months ago during Lent, but as we came to the end of it, I thought we need a little bit more time with this text, particularly with Samson, the 12th judge 
So we're going to look at his life for several weeks, the beginning of summer, and see if it and he can teach us about the Christian life now. So two points this morning. One, the times, and two, the couple. First of all, the times. Let me begin with a quick review of the book. Judges begins with Joshua's death, and Joshua was the leader of Israel after Moses. He was mainly a military leader, and through him, Israel gained mostly control of the entirety of the promised land, most of it, but not all of it. And so Joshua's dying charge to the next generation, really the Lord's charge to them through Joshua is finish. Expel the foreign nations and the foreign peoples and the foreign gods from the midst of the land. And they did to some extent, but not fully. They did it in somewhat of a half-hearted way. Some of the people they enslaved, others they just simply ignored, but others they brought ever so close and married even, which is basically in the Old Testament synonymous with wholesale rejection of the Lord. Anytime a man or a woman marries someone from another country, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about nationality, but theology and about belief and liturgy and culture. And so when someone intermarries from Israel, when Israel intermarries with other peoples, they die spiritually and theologically, and then they die morally and culturally. And we see that time and time again throughout the Old Testament. And when we see it in Judges, the phrase that we read is, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now think about that phrase for just a moment and how fitting it is for us and for our time. I often emphasize with you that individualism and emotionalism reign supreme in determining for us what we see as right. I've told you about Carl Truman and what he calls expressive individualism. And that is what is behind what happened a couple of years ago when a German man sued his government to have his birth certificate changed. He was over 70 years old, and he had noticed after turning 70, he got less and less attention on various dating apps And so he wanted to be 55 again. And so this is a true story. He argued that he felt like he was 55 and that he identified as such. And that though his biological age was different than his true age, society should recognize his true age. How an individual feels has become the new modern standard for truth and goodness. Because we're told Follow your own heart. Trust your own heart above all else. No society and no culture in the history of the world has ever said that. And so we are on on uncharted ground culturally. It's why this ancient phrase fits us so well. But beyond a phrase from Judges, there's also a pattern that connects with us and connects with our time. Here in verse 1, we find part of it. The first part of the pattern, it's fivefold, but the first part is forgetting All the way back in chapter three, verse seven, with the very first judge, we read, and Israel forgot the Lord and served the Baals, served these other people's gods. And a couple of things about this word. I told you this, I want to tell you it again. But forgetting is not primarily cognitive. That's not what the scriptures mean. It's not as though suddenly the people of Israel forgot everything that the Lord had done. Mentally, couldn't recall it. That they, they, had, they couldn't recall what he had done with the 10 plagues or the parting of the Red Sea or when the walls of Jericho miraculously fell. It's not that at all. It's that those events as signs and evidence of the Lord's reality and his power and his presence and his grace among them no longer moved their hearts, no longer captivated them. 
the way that other things and other events and other circumstances and other people did. And now other things held their gaze. And so they gave their time and their attention and their energy to that. That is what it means to forget the Lord in the scriptures. And it's more of this detachment of heart, so to speak, than a failure of mind. And another detail about this word is back in chapter three, verse seven, when the first judge is mentioned and it says that Israel forgot the Lord, it's the only time in the entire book that that word forget shows up. No more do we read of it because it sets the pattern. It begins the pattern. And then the rest of the book is what it's like to forget him. And so that's the first part of the pattern. The second part of the pattern we find here in verse one, it says explicitly that Israel again did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And that word again shows up with each successive judge from number two, all the way here to number 12, again and again and again, Israel does what is evil, not in their sight, not in their thoughts or their feelings, because that changes, but in the sight of the Lord. And third part of the pattern, the Lord then gives them over to their enemies to be enslaved by them. And then four, Israel cries out after years of suffering. And then five, the fifth part of the pattern, God raises up a deliverer or a judge to set them free. So forgetting the Lord, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord giving them over, then them crying out, and then fifth and finally, the Lord raising up a judge. Now here in our passage at the beginning here, what is missing? There's no crying out. With every previous judge, they cry out. And I told you this back in Lent, but this crying out throughout the book of Judge is not repentance. Repentance is true sorrow. It's appropriate sorrow over something that is legitimately wrong, and it moves someone or it moves a group of people to change and to turn and to not turn back. That is not what we have in Judges. That's not the crying out that is happening here. That is a type of crying out, but it's not what we have here because Israel never really changes. They, they never change fully or for very long. They never change internally. There's only this brief external conformity to the judge, to his presence and to his influence. But as soon as he dies, the evil that they've done comes back again and again and again. So the crying out throughout judges is a cry of anguish. It's, it's a cry of pain. It's them finally feeling and realizing the harm that's being done. But here, at this new point, at this new low point in, in the history of Israel and in the book of Judges here, there's no cry. There's no objection. There's no resistance because they're content with it now. They're used to it now. The spiritual, moral, relational slavery is now accustomed to them or they to it. And we have to ask ourselves, what about us? Is there anything that we, is there anything that you have given yourself over to that has you and it holds you so much so that you no longer feel its harm anymore or object or resist? Because the power of sin, the power that is sin is still very capable of doing that to us as well, individually, as couples, as families, as groups. A number of well, quite a while ago, not several months ago, a friend of mine came to me and asked me how this has happened to his spouse. In many ways, she had become the very opposite person than the one that he married. Her beliefs had completely flipped. She no longer identified as a Christian. Her behavior was totally different. She's trying things and doing things that, that my friend never thought possible. These people don't worship here at All Saints, by the way. Um, just to be clear, <laughs> just in case you're tracking with me. But... Uh, 
but she no longer wanted to be married. And they had previously had a wonderful marriage years before, but she wanted out and she didn't even seem to feel affected or act affected by the hurt and the pain that was being caused. Nothing like him. And he just asked me, how is that possible? And so I said, it's kind of like having a fire outside your house. And the more that you open a door or a window, the more the smoke from outside that gets in. And the wider you open the door, the more often that you open the door, the more and the more and the more the house fills with smoke to the point where you can't see anymore and you can't even breathe anymore. It's no longer a place of life. And our souls are like that with evil and our souls are like that with sin. That's why we've all known people who seem to have hit a tipping point when their hearts flip and they're all of a sudden not the same person that we once knew them to be and they're not well. And they're not crying out, not crying out as they once did or as they still should. And that happens to individuals. We all know it. It happens to groups. It happens to people. It happens to cultures. And that is the times. But this leads us to the second point, the couple. Israel's complete conformity to all the dark, broken ways of the world around them. It's why we have what we have here in Judges chapter 13. It's this birth narrative. And it's not just any old birth narrative. It's also the miraculous birth narrative. The reason that we have it is because God has to start from scratch here. There is no one from within Israel to raise up. Salvation has to come from completely outside of them and beyond them. And friends, the Bible insists that that is always true in any age, in any time, in any day, that we cannot and will not left to ourselves save ourselves, that sin and evil take us, hold us, silence us, silence our cries. We neither know that we need rescue or want rescue or will seek it. And that's really the main point of the book of Judges. It's not the depths to which Israel sinks, but the heights of the glory of the grace of God to them, that he comes back for them time and time and time again, comes back to a people who will not and cannot come back to him. And he comes back to them to rescue them from themselves and also from whatever it is that holds them. And that is what we see more clearly with Manoah and his wife. One important detail is given for each of them in verse two. The detail about Manoah is that he's from the tribe of Dan. may seem innocuous, but... That's one of the least important tribes, the smallest and the weakest of the tribes. The tribe of Dan was always listed toward the end anytime the tribes of Israel were mentioned. And also about his wife, it's told to us that she's barren. So an unimportant man from an unimportant people and a barren wife. And this is through whom the Lord Yahweh begins to rescue his people using someone and some, a couple that no one could mistake for for being the source of what he's about to do. And the angel of the Lord begins with the woman, the the least important and the most obscure of the two. And notice she's not even named. She's central to the story. 19 different times she gets mentioned. In chapter three, in the beginning of chapter, chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 14. No one else gets mentioned more, but no one gets described less. Everyone gets a name, everyone except her which again shows us through whom and how the Lord typically works. He usually uses people who cannot make a name for themselves in this world in order to do his greatest work in this world, in order that everyone will know that he is the one who is doing it. And just a little bit of application before I go on. Friends, we so desperately want to be named by this world, to be named and known 
known for our abilities, known for our successes and our accomplishments. All of us know the experience of the pain of not seeing our name somewhere or not hearing it read at some point. I still remember when I was 10 years old, I had grown up playing soccer and was decent at it as far as 10-year-olds from Oklahoma goes. It's not exactly a bastion of soccer development there in Oklahoma in the 1980s. I think they still called it a communist sport. They probably still do, actually. But I had played since I was four. I was now 10. I was trying out for this regional team. And at the end of the tryout, all of us 10-year-olds were sitting around on the field with all of our parents standing behind as the coach read off the names from the list of those who had made the team. And my name wasn't read. And I began to cry subtly until I went up to the coach afterward and asked if he had made a mistake, if he had maybe just missed my name. And when he told me no, that he had not made a mistake, my crying became less and less subtle. And I never played soccer again, that dumb communist sport, never. (laughs) But to console me, my mom told me that when she was a senior in high school, everyone thought that she would be voted homecoming queen. And there was another girl who was maybe a little bit of competition, but everyone thought that my mom would win. But when the name was read over the intercom, it was the other girl's name because they found out later that my mom's name is Brenda, but there was another Brenda who had a similar sounding last name and she got a bunch of votes randomly. And so people mistook that other woman and voted for her and my mom lost. That story did not console a 10-year-old boy when it was told to me at all, but... We've all had this experience in some way or another. We all know what it's like to not be named and to work tirelessly to get named. It's why some of you work so hard at your jobs and exhaust yourself for your job and sacrifice everything else for your job. It's not because you love the work or because you need the money, but because you want to be named. It's why some of you obsess so much over your children, their successes and their relationship to somehow shield them or protect them from what I experienced was a 10-year-old boy. You can't. Or why some of you children, you kids, high school students, you college students, you obsess about your grades or your sports, or you artists with your music or with your art. It's why some of you so desperately want to be a part of this club or this group because you think, you, you deeply, deeply feel and believe that if you just get in with them, if they finally name you, then everything that's wrong in your life, everything that's been wrong in your past, it'll finally be okay. And you'll be satisfied with life. And you'll be able to accept yourself. And you'll finally know peace and happiness and contentment. And I'm telling you, you won't. You won't. Not fully. Not for long. Because nothing and no one in this world naming us can ever be wonderful enough for our souls. You do not need a name from anyone or anything in this world, you need to know a name, another's name, that is far too wonderful for it. And that is what Manoah and his wife encounter here. The angel of the Lord comes to Manoah's wife two different times. The first time in verses three through five tells her that he, that the Lord is going to open her womb and that she's going to have a son who's going to be set apart from birth for a very particular and unique work that the Lord's going to do through him. He's going to be a Nazarite and Nazarites in Israel, they didn't touch anything that was dead. They didn't cut their hair and they never drank wine, all very normal, natural, and even good things. But they said no to them in order that they might make a very definite yes to something more important, namely God himself. And this woman has told this, his wife, and Manoah has to be shocked. But notice what's emphasized with Noah. It's not shock. It's his limitation. 
What's emphasized with him is all that he doesn't know and doesn't have. He's not present at the first visit. He's not initially present at the second visit in verse nine. So he doesn't know what his son's mission will be. And that's what he asked the angel very specifically in verse 12. What's his mission going to be? And notice the answer in verse 13. He doesn't tell him. His question isn't answered. And then in verses 15 through 16, Manoah tries to feed the angel who is more than just any angel. It's told us that he's the angel of the Lord, who is this, this figure that appears throughout the Old Testament. And every time that he appears, eventually it's revealed that this is and understood to be appearance of God himself in some type of physical form. And then in verse 16, we read explicitly, Manoah did not know. And then at the end in verse 22, he still doesn't know. He still doesn't know what's happening. He wrongly says, we're going to die because he rightly understands that people who see God typically die. And his wife has to say, otherwise, honey, we can't have a baby if we're going to die. So thanks be to God that our wives set us straight always. But this couple is not only unknown and unnamed, especially the wife, but so very limited in their apprehension and understanding of everything that God is doing and everything that's unfolding before them because they are caught up with a God that is so far beyond their comprehension that even his plan to use them isn't revealed to them. They don't know what their son will do. And they could never have imagined everything that will unfold the next three chapters. They were not told. But in their limitation, they believe what they've heard. Manoah's prayer in verse 8 isn't a prayer of doubt. It's it's a, a request for more direction, for more instruction. And notice that God answers his prayer, but he doesn't answer his prayer by telling him everything that he asks. He answers his prayer by giving him his presence. And then by reiterating the very simple, straightforward instructions that they've already received. And the Lord's presence plus this simple instruction, it is enough for him. And some of you this morning especially need to see and to hear that because you're very confused about your life. You're confused and concerned about all that the Lord is doing. Beyond confused, you're disappointed, or maybe you're angry even, and you want answers. But the Lord's word and the Lord's presence to Manoah in this visitation is enough. And this couple, more than any other in the story, they are a picture of what it is to live by faith. No other, for the most part, no other person in the entire book of Judges is to be imitated and followed as an example of what it means to live by faith. There's nothing to critique or there's nothing to condemn. They're simply very humble, unimportant, unknown, unnamed people whose lives the very living God invades. And they respond as they only can when the power and the grace and the presence of God is revealed to them. And friends, you have had more revealed to you. You know of a more miraculous birth to an equally obscure and limited couple who were also visited by an angel and who also were told that they would have a son who would be holy and dedicated to God. And they weren't told either about all that his life would entail. They could never have imagined Their son's birth wouldn't be preceded by a sacrifice, but his death would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And just like the angel of the Lord here, Jesus himself would ascend back into heaven, but only after his death and from an altars, of all altars, the cross itself, 
having died to pay the penalty for our sins. And he wouldn't defeat Philistines. He would defeat all evil and all sin and all enemies and eventually free his people from every enemy they've ever faced, spiritual or earthly. And no one knew the plan. No one knew what Jesus would do. Not even his parents. They never could have imagined it because it's too wonderful. That as we sing at Christmas, that Jesus would be God and king and sacrifice. Far too much for them to take in. Because all that God is and all that he's doing is always too wonderful for us. And we can never fully grasp it. But we can trust it. And we can trust him. That regardless of how low we may go or how bad our times may be or seem, the Lord has worked wonders. He has worked wonders and he continues to do so for us. And so like Manoah and his wife in verse 19, we are watching without fully comprehending. And that really is the point in the application for us of this passage, that we too, like them, have to make our offering to a God who is beyond our grasp. And our offering is always in and through the ultimate and final offering of Jesus himself. And what our offering is, is nothing other than ourselves. As we say at the Eucharist, so often our souls and our bodies, it is everything. Our lives, our relationships, our money, our possessions, our children, everything. Because none of it is to be for us to make a name for ourselves in this world. But all of it is to be given back to him from whom it comes because he is too wonderful for this world. But he has come to us nonetheless in Jesus. And so you are precious to God. You are holy. You are set apart, much like Samson, but even more so. You are set apart for him. So as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but trust him, believe in him, follow him, who is too wonderful for it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this Trinity Sunday, we do acknowledge that you are too wonderful to be named, but you have made yourself known to us in and through the name of Jesus. And so we pray this morning, as always, that you, Lord Jesus, would make yourself known in and through and by your spirit, that we might know you, worship you, love you, and that our lives might be changed, that we might be a blessing to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.